Hello and welcome to the Global Inquirer. We are an undergraduate research podcast based in the University of Virginia, and each week we bring you stories from across the world to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. I'm your host, Emma Ross. Today, we'll be discussing the history of Kashmir and why it's such a turbulent area of the world. Today, I'm sitting down with two of our researchers, Aditya Seth, a fourth year studying IT and marketing in UVA's School of Commerce. Hi, Aditya. Hey. And we also have with us Abigail Quinn, a first year intended to major in foreign affairs and French. How are you doing? Good, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. So I'm excited to hear what you guys brought for us here today. So let's start with a little bit of history on Kashmir. So um, Kashmir is essentially in the northwestern part of the Indian subcontinent. It's bounded by Afghanistan in the northwest, China in the northeast, and the south by the Indian states of Himachal Pradesh and Punjab. And in the west and north- northwest of Kashmir lies um, a few provinces of Pakistan. Um, Kashmir is a region with a vast history and its uh, history dates back ages. It's been ruled by the Mughal Emperor of Hindustan, which was um, India back in the day. Um, It's been under Afghan rule. It's also been under the Sikh Maharajas. And most recently, before um, India and Pakistan achieved independence from the British, it was ruled by the Hindu uh, Dogra Kingdom. Um, Currently, Kashmir is... um, essentially split up between India and Pakistan and partly by China. So India controls the southern half of Kashmir, which is organized into two union territories, which means they're administered by the union government. These are Jammu and Kashmir and Ladakh. Before India's defeat uh, to China in the Indochina war, India also controlled the northeastern part of Kashmir, which now is part of China as Aksai-Chin. On the other hand, Pakistan controls the northern and western part of Kashmir, which is organized into three main regions. One of them, Azad, which translates to Free Kashmir, which uh, which is uh, occupies the western border of Kashmir between the Indian Union territory of Jammu and Kashmir on the east and Pakistan on the west. It also administers Gilgit and Baltistan, which northern areas located in the Karakoram range in the far northwest. So thank you for orienting us a little bit geographically, but you also mentioned that it's Kashmir is torn between two countries. Could you talk about how that came to be? Right. So I think a major reason behind that is the partition of India, which took place in 1947. So this is one of the deadliest events in modern history where a 400 people strong Indian subcontinent was split up into Hindu majority India and Muslim majority Pakistan. Um, there was a lot of mass migration of Hindus and Sikhs who migrated from India, from Pakistan to India, and Muslims who migrated from erstwhile British India to the newly formed uh, state of Pakistan. So as per this plan, Kashmir was a princely state and had the option to um, become independent or accede to India or Pakistan. Most other princely states had acceded to one of the two, depending on the, relig- the, pop- the religion of their population. So the Hindu majority ones acceded to India and the Muslim ones to Pakistan. But Kashmir, however, was a unique case and as, as it was a Muslim majority state with, with a Hindu ruler. So you mentioned that partition is a particularly 
turbulent time for all nations involved. Can you speak to a specific instance of conflict that arose in this time? During 1947, at this particularly heated time in the Indian subcontinent, there was this event called the Jammu Massacre that took place um, in the state of Kashmir that was ruled by Maharaja Hari Singh, who was the Hindu Dogra ruler at the time. And many people consider this uh, to have actually sown the seeds for the modern-day Kashmir dispute. A lot of subjects of the king were protesting um, since he was particularly unpopular in a region called Poonch, which falls under the Jammu region that had a large Muslim population at the time. Um, however, sentiments were highly communal at the time, and there were a lot of Hindu and Sikh refugees coming in from across newly formed Pakistan to seek refuge in uh, Jammu and other parts of India. So as a result of this, this non-communal issue became a communal one and was also mishandled and aggravated greatly by that administration. Uh, so a lot of these demonstrators in the Poonch region and the larger, larger Jammu area were strategically and forcefully displaced from various parts um, of the state by the Dogra army and its uh, supporting Hindu and Sikh refugees who had come in from Pakistan as a sign of revenge. Um, here, um, Amanullah Khan was actually one of these refugees um, during that time who managed to survive the Jammu massacre, massacre and narrates his ordeal to us uh, through Indus News. Anyway, so when we got to some unknown place and uh, on one side was a thick jungle full of bushes, and where there the people, the Hindus and the um, other, you know, this uh, uh, were uh, hiding themselves. Mm -hmm. And they, uh, all of a sudden, when the buses stopped, they all of a sudden came out of those bushes, you know, and they came out with their swords and with their knives and with their guns and I don't what not. And they started rampage of killing people. Uh so, as, as you heard from Mr. Khan, this was what a lot of Muslims faced at the time in Jammu and Kashmir, and this often created scenes like the killing fields of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia, and about 200,000 Muslims were killed um, in this massacre. Uh, like Mr. Khan, many were sent on foot to Western Punjab and eventually became citizens of Pakistan um, as per the partition plan. This reduced the population of Muslims who were originally 60% in Jammu and formed a majority to a minority. And a lot of people attribute this to the Dogra ruler and think it was a strategically, uh, strategically created state-sponsored genocide to actually bring about demographic changes um, in the state of Jammu so the ruler could, ruler's wishes could align with the wishes of the population. Interestingly, interestingly enough, a few days after the Jammu massacre, uh, tribal tribal militias from Pakistan's northwest frontier province, um, where a lot of the Jammu Muslims had moved to or had uh, uh, family ties to, invaded the Maharaja's um, kingdom of Kashmir, and these storm, two thousand of these tribesmen stormed through Muzaffarabad and other territories in the western part of the region and were fast moving to Srinagar, which was the state capital and the seat of the Maharaja. Like I mentioned before, the Maharaja actually wanted the state to be independent and didn't want it to go with India or Pakistan. But with the fear of losing his seat and his title as king, 
he under pressure from the indian state signed an instrument to accede um accede to the indian dominion and return for military assistance uh from india to wade off the tribesmen who had invaded from pakistan so when india offered military assistance they lifted the troops into the valley cut off the tribesmen and the line where the tribesmen were stopped um is uh, the line that currently divides kashmir between india and pakistan and was later came to be known as the line of control thank you for that clarification aditya and now i'm curious so we all know that you know there's emerging globalism coming in this time and you know the 1945 1947 age and the un becomes a bigger um world player and also other countries are now starting to respond to what's happening um around the world both in news and and economics and trade this trend has emerged as we're a growing global world i'm just wondering you know with this massacre that happens what's the international backlash that happens and what do we see after that yeah so in 1948 the un actually passed uh resolution 47 and it's still discussed today in a lot of debates over the conflict so it basically called for a referendum on the status of the territory it said that pakistan had to withdraw its troops um and after that had been done india had to keep its troop presence to a minimum um however notably pakistan did not end up removing those troops and a lot of people will point to that a lot of people on the indian side will point to that and kind of look at that as um a factor in the continuation of the conflict so eventually in 1951 elections were held in india administered jammu and kashmir and this these elections found support for accession into india but the un and pakistan still believe that a referendum needs to be held for the entirety of um kashmir So in 1957 the constitution of Jammu and Kashmir which at the time is still administered by India defines that region as part of India and officially ratifies that accession. All right, so you were just placing us around 1974 and talking about different agreements that happened around there. But also on the global stage since we're putting this into context, we cannot ignore the fact that both India and Pakistan acquire nuclear weapons. Um throughout this era. So could you speak to how nuclear weapons have maybe amplified the conflict between the two countries? Yeah, definitely. So India first tested a nuclear missile in May of 1974, and right now they're at about 130 to 140 missiles, but technically they're outside of most agreements, most major nuclear agreements but they are a party in the partial test ban treaty which is a pretty big one and they are still regulated by the international atomic energy agency pakistan on the other hand didn't technically test their first nuclear weapon and officially become a nuclear state until 1998 but they began developing a nuclear program of uranium enrichment following their defeat in that small indo-pakistani war from 1971 to 1972 So there it's a member of a lot of treaties but many of them from places like China and North Korea. So a lot of people predict that by 2025 the two countries could have about 400 to 500 missiles in their arsenals in total. So that's kind of scary because they have the potential if they targeted urban centers to kill 50 to 125 million people. So nuclear weapons are definitely something that 
we should be aware of in this conflict, but at this time, they didn't really have a huge nuclear capability that it was something to be entirely worried about. It's only something that we should maybe worry about now and into the coming future conflict. Right. Just for context there, when you were discussing treaties, I just want to briefly add that only four states have not signed the Non-Proliferation Treaty of Nuclear Weapons. Um, Those include India, Pakistan, Israel, and South Sudan. Uh, And both India and Pakistan have publicly disclosed that they do have nuclear weapons. So um, that just kind of speaks to um, what degree of international norms these countries are willing to hold up. Yeah, so 1987 was definitely a big year um, in the beginning of further insurgency movements because it followed disputed state elections in the Indian state of Jammu and Kashmir. We're back there again. Um, So there was a local armed insurgency that began on the part of local groups who had lost the election, and the Jammu-Kashmir Liberation Front emerged as the center of a pro-independence movement. But a number of small militant groups emerged during this time in the valley who were allegedly receiving logistical and military support from Pakistan. So India also accuses Pakistan of crossing the line of control during this time. Um, They accuse them of sending troops in to aid this movement to create a disruption for the Indian government. And in 1990, the Indian government, the Indian army killed over 100 demonstrators who are protesting at a local bridge. So during this time, they imposed the pretty infamous Armed Forces Special Powers Act, which was originally granted in 1958 and allows the army to maintain peace in places labeled as disturbed areas. So during this time, a lot of uh, Hindus fled the Kashmir Valley in huge numbers. And as there were um, Islamic separatist groups who tried to... uh, convert the entire region. So a lot of them fleed for their lives and set up makeshift makeshift neighborhoods in places like Jammu City, which is what one of the video clips talks about. They've been living in this tiny room provided by the government, and all they have from the better times are these memories. We lost our home, our motherland, our identity. Our comfort is also gone. We had a better life there. But if we go back now, we won't be free. Still, if we get security, we'd like to go back. So zooming back into Kashmir in the context of being caught between India and Pakistan, how do we see um, on-ground conflict move forward? So yeah, with the massive Hindu migration, a lot of these people who were forced to leave the valley are kind of known as forgotten victims. Um, They were targeted by these Islamic extremists during this time, and a lot of people didn't really talk about this phenomenon. You know, you think of it as a Muslim majority um, area, but you don't really talk about a lot of the Hindus who were forced to move to these places, these makeshift camps and some of them as they talked about in the video had been living there for two decades or more. So eventually throughout the 1990s Kashmiris were training in Pakistan and hundreds of thousands of Indians tro- Indian troops also descended on the land and both sides committed a lot of acts of violence against civilians which we're going to talk about later. 
For example, there was the abuse of Kashmiris who were detained during the conflict by the Indian government. There were disappearances and many were not given a reason for their detention. Whereas on the other side, militants would often attack men, women, and children whom they believed to be traitors to the cause. They were chopping off ears and noses to punish family members, for example. Yeah, that's, that, I mean, that's just awful to hear all of these stories of people not just on necessarily one side or the other side or of third-party militants, but it seems like there are several aggressors in this story and it's it's hard to find moral high ground to you know, be the person who can unilaterally say, you know, Kashmir should be designated to us and that, you know, we would provide them with the proper rights as uh, citizens. I think there's just so much complicated conflict emerging throughout the history here that it's really hard to move forward with uh, the future of Kashmir and have a correct answer as to what's supposed to happen. Yeah, definitely. And even the two countries struggled with that because they broke off relations with each other in 1999 after India had, uh, after militants had crossed into the India administered Karjal district and India accused Pakistan of being behind the attack. So after that, in 1999, the two countries stopped speaking to each other diplomatically, basically. And that definitely was a source of future conflict. Wow, I mean, that's a pretty drastic measure. I mean, hopefully there's a path forward for the two countries, but I mean, when there's this much history of conflict and back and forth and not not having a clear path forward in human rights violations, it's hard to find a path forward. But obviously today isn't 1999. So what has happened in that in-between time and at the turn of the millennia as far as, you know, relations between the two countries, as far as formal and informal actions that have been taken? Um, the, the turn of the millennium uh, actually saw some peace come into the region. Um, this was due to a number of factors. There was, you know, Pakistan disassociating with some military group, uh, militant groups. Um, both the countries actually coming together to facilitate a dialogue process. So these, uh, these actually resulted in the insurgency diminishing. And personally, having lived in India during that time, we all genuinely thought that Kashmir was finally coming to a solution. Um, turns out, uh, unfortunately, we were mistaken. In uh, Insurgency began to trickle in slowly in the late 2000s and the early 2010s when the Kashmir Valley saw its largest demonstration since 1994 and predominantly against Indian authority. Um, this, this insurgency had actually taken a new form. Instead of people taking up guns and bombs at grenades, it was led by um, stone pelters many of whom were just, you know, disgruntled locals who had formed groups through social media and who had grown up during the age of the insurgency in the 90s. These people would just take up stones and, you know, throw it at um, symbols of administration, be it police officers, post offices, policemen, the army individuals themselves. Um, A lot of them eventually went down to joining groups like the Hezbollah Mujahideen, which are separatist groups in the region. The situation has gradually gotten worse and a lot of people typically blame uh, India's hard-handedness in the situation where, you know, a lot of the uh, separatist leaders were constantly imprisoned um, and, you know, there was a a ban on, like, student unions in Kashmir University and a ban on student politics. So this, in many ways, as per a lot of uh, experts, this alienated 
the Kashmiri populace from the Indian mainland. And I think um, coming right um, up to speed, you know, 2019, uh, India, the Indian government repealed Article 370 of the Indian Constitution. And this, as per the Kashmiris, is an extension of this hard-handedness. This basically took away the special status accorded to Kashmir at the time of independence and made it a part of the Indian Union like any other state. So this is this has been talked about a lot over the last six months, and the government says it's to open up Kashmir for business to prevent insurgency, to actually integrate it into the rest of the union. And this, this is a fair argument, and it's received widespread support across the nation, but it's been largely controversial since there's been a lot of political detainees in this process. Um, thousands of armed forces deployed in the region, in addition to the ones that were already there. And there's been a communications and internet services cut off um, uh, in the region for a few months. So all in all, I mean, the last 10 years have been moved really fast. Insurgency has grown again. And, you know, it seems like Kashmir is again at a turning point right now. I, I'm kind of curious. Could you speak a little bit more to the effect that... Um inserting soldiers into the situation and armed forces has had on people who actually live in this region of the world? Yeah, so there's been a major impact on the actual civilians who live in this region. I feel like in news conversations, we focus mostly on the military aspects, but we never really talk about the actual people who are being affected, which is definitely a shame because since 1989, at least 40,000 people have died because of the violence in this region. There have been incidents of the Indian army using shotgun pellets, pellets against people, which have injured over 6,000 people. They've put the state of Jammu and Kashmir onto a communication lockdown multiple times so as to cut them off from the rest of the world. And there have even been accusations against Indian armed forces for extrajudicial killings um, and forced disappearances and even sexual violence. One notable example was in 2014, several civilians were killed, um, but the five Indian military officers responsible were acquitted in the military tribunal because the act that they're basically working under um, basically gives them immunity and the army does not support civilian judicial procedures. So they're allowing these people to get away with this violence because they're members of the military. And Pakistan occupied Kashmir also has seen several human rights abuses um, where innocent Kashmiris have been tar targeted by surveillance of the Pakistani government, their intelligence agency, and their government allegedly represses democratic freedoms, closely controls elections, and subverts pro-independence groups. I mean, wow, that was quite the laundry list of human rights abuses. Yeah, I think that just speaks to the fact that, you know, this isn't a simple issue and that we have to think very critically about, you know, both sides and moving forward. And also, I think, I mean, that list of humanitarian uh, issues that are going on, I mean, should definitely give our listeners a sense of maybe urgency in watching the news and seeing how this story develops because it's in everyone's best interest that, you know, this conflict have a peaceful resolution. But, you know, speaking of watching the news and kind of keeping up with what's going on, where does that put us today with this international issue? And are there hopes for peace? So basically, 
today as of 2020 the option of an independent state is almost non-existent uh, after india has revoked article 370 and integrated kashmir into the rest of the union pakistan occupied kashmir is almost a part of the rest of pakistan and it's very unlikely that it would become a part of india considering it's almost entirely muslim and partition was done on relig religious lines back in 1947. the part that china controls um is again also likely to remain under their control for the foreseeable future lastly there was the, the un actually did call for a referendum like we talked about but this would be realistically hard to administer considering that the region is broken up is controlled by three sovereign nations now so really at this point it seems like the only feasible solution going forward might be to accept current boundaries and recognize them as true international borders give india that territory and give pakistan that territory and finally solidify the fact that those are their boundaries since India revoked Article 370, the burden is now on the government to ensure that there's employment and a thriving economy in Kashmir, as there will be no excuse for the lack of it if they are fully in under their control. So really at this point, in order to avoid the violence, that's really the best option. And that's our episode for this week. As always, thank you for listening to The Global Inquirer, and thank you to Aditya and Abigail for bringing us this week's story. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can follow us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Consider leaving a comment and liking us on Facebook, and be sure to join us next week when we sit down with Roma Chitko to discuss how Indigenous people around the globe engage differently with their states.